queens, welcome to Dose of Deception with the queens of queens, Shannon and Emily. Join our true crime family where we discuss murders, missing persons cases, mysteries, and a whole lot of conspiracy theories. So stay tuned for the wild ride. Hey queens, welcome back to this episode of Dose of Deception. Before we get into this episode today, if you're a new listener, we just want to let you know what we do here on the show. In the first half, Emily comes in with a true crime case, whether it be a murder mystery or a missing persons case. And in the second half, I come in with a conspiracy theory that we discuss. Also, we just want to let you know about our different social media accounts. We have an Instagram at Dose of Deception. We also have a Facebook group, which is also at Dose of Deception, where we like to engage with our listeners. And we also have a new YouTube channel, which right now we're using as a clips channel from our previous episodes. So make sure you check that out if you haven't heard those. But in the future, we're going to expand on it. So, Emily, what are we talking about this week? So this week, we're going to be discussing a missing persons case, which not only frustrates me and the public, but has baffled authorities for the past 15 years. Hmm. It was actually the 15-year anniversary of the disappearance this past April 1st. Oh, okay. Yeah, and this is going to be the disappearance of Brian Schaefer. Never heard of it. (laughs) As usual. (laughs) Yeah. Brian Schaefer was born on February 25th, 1979 in Pickerington, Ohio, to parents Randy and Renee, and he also has a younger brother named Derek. Brian was a very intelligent person. He graduated high school in 1997 and went on to study at Ohio State University. And six years later, he graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology. Hmm. Immediately upon graduating, he began his doctorate at Ohio State University College of Medicine in 2004, just two years before his disappearance. Unfortunately, in March 2006, Brian's mother, Renee, died of myelodysplasia, which is a rare form of cancer. Mm. Now, keep this in mind because it is a little unusual for him to go missing less than a month after his mother dies. Mm. Those around Brian noted how he took his mother's death very, very hard. They were very close and were best friends, so on the surface, he tried to be calm and show that he was handling it well, but, you know, it did hit him hard. Brian had an eventful year coming up. Since Ohio State University's spring break officially began March 30th, Brian and his girlfriend, who was also a med student at OSU, they planned a trip to Miami. It was actually a Christmas gift from his mom, Renee, the year before, um, before she passed away. And on this trip, Brian allegedly told his mom before she died that he was going to propose to Alexis. Hmm. And, you know, both their families was very happy. I know yeah. his, his mother, Renee, was uh, supposedly very, very excited because she loved Alexis. And, you know, you don't always get along with your in-laws. Right. So it was just a really good situation for mm-hmm. them. Brian loved warm weather on the beach, and it's funny because although he was going to med school, he had a passion for music, and his real dream was to start a band. Oh. He loved listening to Jimmy Buffett, and he wanted his band to be just as relaxed, which is so funny because med school is the complete opposite of that. Of, like, a Jimmy Buffett vibe? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So Ohio State University spring break officially begins March 31st, 2006, and Brian was celebrating all his hard work, and he went out to a fancy dinner with his dad, uh, Randy. Okay. So apparently they went to a nice steak dinner. They were just trying to celebrate. Now, keep this dinner in mind, because it comes into play a little bit later on. Got it. After the dinner ends, Brian's friend, William Florence, who they called Clint, asked if he would want to go out to a bar to continue celebrating. Clint was Brian's former roommate, and the two of them were very close. Now, Randy notes how exhausted Brian looked because he was just, he said he had just been, been pulling all-nighters. Um, mm. Because, you know, it's the week before a break, so you know how professors kind of oh, load 100%. it on. 100%. They, like, realize they don't have enough papers <laughs> to grade, and then it's all at one time. Exactly. And so, uh, he does, uh, he did say how exhausted he looked. However, Brian said he was going on a trip for a week anyway, with uh, Alexis coming up, so he could just sleep it off then. Yeah. And so he ended up saying yes to going out in what would be a fateful decision. Mm. 
So at 9 p.m., Brian met Clint at a bar called the Ugly Tuna Saluna. That's... I don't know if that's a great name for a bar or a terrible name for a bar. I love it. It's so recognizable that it's mm-hmm. probably a great name for a bar. Their slogan is funny, too. It says, Fresh Fish, Ugly Owners. <laughs> And this that's bar, amazing. yeah, it's in Columbus, Ohio. It's that's actually really pretty from the outside. I believe it, I think it might have closed down, but oh. there is a second one that opened up. I oh, believe. okay, okay. <laughs> and don't quote me on that, it might still be open, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure I saw that it had closed down. Mm-hmm. After about an hour at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, Brian called his girlfriend Alexis, who went home to Toledo, Ohio, to visit her parents before she and Brian left for Miami. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure if one of the phone calls went through and she answered it, but I believe it went straight to voicemail. And you can hear this voicemail if you look it up online. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the voicemail, nothing unusual happened. You know, he said he loved her. He couldn't wait to see her. You know, the normal conversation that a couple would have. Yeah. And the message was nothing out of the ordinary and definitely not behavior of a scared person in trouble. From the Ugly Tuna, Brian and Clint went bar hopping and ended up at about seven other bars in the area. And I looked up all those bars. They were pretty much on the same road. So you yeah. kind of just kept walking and then you'd go into one. Mm-hmm. And Clint told authorities that each of them took only one shot at each bar so they would not be too drunk and they would still be coherent enough uh, to, you know, go to a few different places and still get home safe. Yeah. But either way, still, that's in the span of a few hours, still at least eight shots that they did. Yeah. Nothing you should be, like, driving in. Exactly. They started their night at 9 p.m. and at midnight, they met up with one of Clint's friends, a woman named Meredith Reed. And they met her in the Short North, which is also a neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. Meredith offered them a ride back to the Ugly Tuna, and the three of them decided to go back there, have another shot or a few shots, and then call it a night. Mm-hmm. So are you following the timeline so far? Because this yes. is when things start getting real weird. We're at like 9 to 12, now they're yes. back at Tuna, yeah. Perfect. The Ugly Tuna is a bar located on the second floor of the building. There's only one way in and one way out to the public, and in order to get onto the second floor, you take an, an, one escalator either up or down, Got right? It. They're side by side, so there's no way to, there's no other way that the public could get in. Mm-hmm. An escalator it's an to escalator. get in for very drunk people in and out. Feels a little <laughs> dangerous to me, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> At the top of the escalators, right by the entrance of the bar, there are security guards to keep everyone safe and just, you know, if people are starting fights or whatever, mm-hmm. to just make sure that the bar is good. Now, I also have to mention that there's a camera right at the entrance of the bar where you can see every single person who enters and leaves it. Okay, good. Also, outside, the neighborhood is loaded with cameras, so you can see people who are standing outside the building yeah. as well. Now, Brian, Meredith, and Clint are seen on security camera coming up the escalator and entering the bar at 1.15 a.m. The Ugly Tuna closed at 2 a.m., so they were just going to stay there for the rest of the 45 minutes before it closed, Mm -hmm. and then they were going to head out. Meredith told authorities that they were having fun and talking with people inside the bar, and Brian was with them the whole time. And he did not get into any fights, and they were laughing and getting along with everyone, so there was Mm -hmm. no visible, um, I don't know, like enemies that he made. Around 1.55 a.m., Brian and Clint are captured on the security camera standing outside the entrance of the bar again. And remember, since the bar is indoors, in the footage there's two security guards that are standing near Brian Mm -hmm. at the top of the escalator, and they're still indoors. Clint and Brian are seen standing with two women they met at the bar named Amber Ruick and Brighton Zatko. According to the women who were contacted and cleared by police after Brian's disappearance, Brian was being very flirty and he kissed Brighton on the neck. Yes, and then after that, apparently, he put his his number in her phone, I believe. And the two women said that Brian was being aggressively uh, hitting on them. And there's proof of this? Well, so the video they released is super short. Okay. I'm not sure about that, but that's what the women were saying. And I mean, either way, I feel so bad for Alexis because you know how conflicted she probably feels hearing hearing that this allegedly happened and then also being worried about his safety at the same time. Right. Like there's probably such a tug of war going on. Yeah, you're still definitely... Obviously worried about his safety and all of that stuff, but, you know, it's got to be in the back of your head a little bit. (laughs) I'd be be really hurt. Yeah. 
Brian told them that he was going to go back inside the bar to talk to the band, and the band was called Rock House, Mm -hmm. and the police extensively interviewed the three members, and they do not remember talking to Brian. Okay. But, I mean, they were, you know, performing, so it's not like they remembered everyone they talked to that night. Yes. I feel like a lot of people would come up to you, so you have to remember him specifically. Now, you can see on the security footage that Brian was walking back in the direction of the entrance of the bar Mm -hmm. to go talk with the band members, which also makes sense, because he did say he wanted to start a band. Yeah. Right. I forgot about that. Yes. Now, the two security guards were still staying there in the video, and they did not report any unusual activity. Also, I showed you, I showed Shannon the video. You can see that they're not alone. Like, he's clearly with, talking to two people, and then there's right. a whole other group next to them. So it's mm-hmm. not like he was, it's not like nobody would have seen if he went off anywhere. Yeah, if he went somewhere, somewhere random or was acting suspiciously, someone would have noticed. Sketchiest part of this is that Brian re-enters the bar at 1.57 a.m., and the bar closes at 2 a.m. Right, so why he's, would they even let you in in the first place? Well, yeah. Yeah, close to closing. True, but also he's on camera three minutes before it closes, and then he just disappears. Right. This does not make any sense to me. Right, you would have had to have leave yep. three minutes from then. <laughs> Once the bar closes, people are seen exiting using the escalator, mm-hmm. and Brian's friends waited outside for him because he, they said that he, often he would separate from his friends, especially yeah. drunk. That's normal. And plus, since there was only one escalator, like it's so easy to get separated. Yeah. However, Brian never came out of the bar. Meredith and Clint stood outside waiting, and they both called Brian's phone many times, but it rang and he did not answer. Mm -hmm. And after waiting for him for a while, the two of them assumed he went home or back to his apartment or he went home with somebody else. Yeah. And they went home, uh, mainly because Clint was a TA and he was actually supposed to be watching his teacher's condo that night. Oh, okay. So so he could not stay around for a very long time. Like, he had to get back. It's not that weird. He, like, he's a grown man. Yeah, it's 27. It's not, yeah. Yeah. Brian's dad, Randy, and his girlfriend, Alexis, were concerned right away when he did not call because he was supposed to leave for Miami three days after going to the bar. Mm-hmm. And once he missed their flight on Monday morning, they reported him missing to the Columbus police. That's a long time. So, like, three days is after is when he got reported? Yeah. That's not good. Now, I did mention that there's only one way in and one way out of the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Right. Initially, police thought maybe Brian switched clothes and put on a hat to disguise himself while leaving the bar, which is why the camera didn't pick him up. Mm-hmm. However, this would have required him to have a bag or some sort of new clothing. Exactly. And Clinton Meredith did not report any of this. Yeah, you would have seen it on him. Now, authorities continued looking into this theory either way because there was obviously nothing else to go on. Yeah. But this theory went out the window when police watched the security footage from the entire night. And they accounted for every single person who entered the bar, leaving the bar. Mm -hmm. Everybody except for Brian. Mm. How does somebody enter a bar three minutes before it closes, be inside with a hundred other people around them, also including staff, right. and then vanish into thin air? Right, with only one way in and one way out. Exactly. There, I mean, there was another way out. Okay. We'll get into that. Got it. <laughs> Investigators were stumped and were going through every possibility in their minds. The only other exit to the bar was not accessible to the public. It mm-hmm. was for the staff and, you know, the band and everyone. Yeah. And it was a service door that opened onto a construction site. They thought that maybe Brian was too drunk and fell or possibly passed out by the construction site. However, the workers on the site would have seen his body the following day, and authorities never found him there. Right, and the employees probably would have seen a random person walking through the employee exit. Exactly. <laughs> Plus, there is no camera by the service door, but authorities said that there is a long hallway that you have to walk down to reach the door, and the hallway had a camera in it. And he never went through that? Well, they never released this footage, the authorities, but they did say that they watched the, um, the ca- I mean, why wouldn't they have a released it that's my right, question it's a little weird but they did say that they watched the security footage and they did account for the band and other workers walking yeah. through it however brian schaefer was not on this video either so that's like literally impossible yeah that means he just stayed in the bar by himself like that doesn't yeah. make sense well investigators ended up turning to cameras outside and they also looked at cameras at all the nearby bars i believe mm-hmm. it was the three nearest by bars mm-hmm. that to see if maybe brian continued drinking that night okay 
However, there was no trace of Brian at any of the other bars or even outside the building the ugly tuna was uh, located in. Okay. And also, even if he had exited the service door, like I said, Columbus, Ohio had so many camera, uh, right. security cameras That's around a it. giant city. That they would have caught him at least walking in the street. 100%. So, I mean, it, it, I don't really think he exited the service door, even though they didn't release the footage. I would lean towards no, based on what I know so far, yeah. Yeah. And actually, Columbus, Ohio has more than Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Toledo combined, the security cameras. Yeah. So it just really was uh, really, really loaded with those. So it, mm-hmm. it would be really hard for him to, to not be on any single camera. Yeah. Police were completely baffled, as I'm sure you are listening to this case, but they kept on looking day and night for Brian. They used search dogs to trace his scent, and they checked every nook and cranny they could, including dumpsters, lakes, and rivers throughout Columbus, for any trace of Brian. Authorities even got permission from the city to search the sewers, but mm. sadly they found nothing, not even any of his belongings or a piece of clothing. Huh. Yeah. Authorities then began printing and distributing flyers with Brian's picture and information on it. And aside from his height, weight, age, and the other, you know, normal stuff they put on yeah. these posters, they included a picture of Brian's Pearl Jam tattoo, because he had a stick figure with the, I believe it was from the cover of the band Sickle Alive, yeah. and he had that on his uh, upper right arm. And he also had a patch of color on his, one of his irises that was very distinct. Mm. So they thought, definitely, this is like a shoe-in. Yeah. They're going to see this tattoo. Somebody's going to recognize him. Yeah. And even for extra motive, they were offering up to $100,000 to anybody who came forward with any information regarding his yeah. whereabouts. They didn't even have to know the full story or even right. know if he if he was murdered or know what happened to him. Yeah. You know, and this is a lot of money, but still nobody came forward with anything. Huh. Brian really did fall off the face of the earth without a trace. And in such a public place too, with so many people around him. And still nobody saw anything. The only other theory that would make sense based on the security footage was that Brian never left Ugly Tuna. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> Maybe he died from alcohol poisoning in the bathroom and the bar did not want a lawsuit. So oh. they covered it up. Mm. That's what a lot of people believe. I could buy that. However, authorities thoroughly searched the bar right away, even pulling up floorboards to check for any possible hidden bodies, and they found nothing. People then thought that maybe the bar did dispose of Brian's body and then went so far as to change out all the cameras the following days after Brian's disappearance. I mean, right away is three days later. That's enough time to do some scheming. True. (laughs) But this would also mean that not only they would have to change the security cameras outside Ugly Tuna, but they would also have to change them on the street as well. Mm -hmm. Because if they were moving his body somewhere, they would have been recording all those. Right. And And I don't think they have the authority to do that. No, 100%. It's not like private cameras. It's the city's cameras. Yeah. And that's also another reason why the authorities said that they did not release the the footage that they got from the the service store. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people believe that the staff had something to do with it. So they didn't want their faces being on camera. Yeah, that makes sense. This does not make sense to me for two reasons. The first reason is that it would mean that those working at the bar at the time would have most likely known about Brian's death. And considering that Ugly Tuna is a bar and grill, these people were very much underpaid and overworked. And they were offering... Why would they hide it? (laughs) Especially that they were offering up to $100,000 for information. If something at um, a minimum wage job, something (laughs) happened at that location... I would not be hiding it for my $15 pay, which at the time of this would have been much less than $15. Yeah, so yeah, no, I can, I get that thought. Yeah. And the second reason why it doesn't make sense is that Brian was seen on security footage entering the bar and everybody was accounted for leaving as well. So unless they disposed of him the following day and then changed all the cameras really, really quickly, it doesn't make sense because there would just be too many people involved and it would just, they would have to do it quickly. 
I mean, I get it, but then, like, what happens? Yeah. You know? What happened to him? <laughs> like, the only people that could have gotten involved and gotten away with it is the staff. But why? Especially since we've already accounted for all of the people that were inside the bar. Yeah. So we know it can't be any of them because we have footage of all of them just leaving like normal. But so uh, it had to have been staff. But they don't have the authority to change out all the footage. I know on the street they don't. Because that's what I mean. But in the hallway to the construction site they do. I guess so, but why? No, that does not make any sense. <laughs> I know it doesn't, but what else could it possibly be? Huh? We got, we got more theories coming. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Authorities went to Brian's apartment right away, and they mm. found his car parked outside. And his apartment was located on King Avenue, only six blocks from Ugly Tuna. The car was untouched, and it had not been moved after Brian's disappearance. Mm-hmm. Inside Brian's apartment, nothing was out of place, and no strange activity was reported by other residents. Or he wasn't even caught on, like, security footage coming back to his home. Like, yeah, on the streets so he and never stuff. went back. No, he never went back. So that still makes me suspicious of, like, the band members and the employees and stuff like that. Like, I understand that they were cleared, and the police talked to them, and we saw almost everybody come out of the bar with the cameras, but... It doesn't make sense for it to be anyone else that would have been involved besides those people. Yeah, but to my knowledge, the police did interview them and they are cleared. And also, not even just them, but also the customers who came. Like, the police really looked into this case. And to my knowledge, the staff doesn't have anything to do with it as of right now. Well, what about, like, management and stuff like that? I mean, whoever was at the bar that night, I'm pretty pretty sure they questioned and they were cleared. Yeah, they're the ones that would have the power to, like, switch the cameras around and things like that. Yeah, and also with the cameras, you were saying how they could have, they could have, uh... Switched the one in the service door? Right, like edited them. Yeah, but wouldn't the timestamp be different then? That's something you have to think about. Right, yeah, didn't in, think of that. No, yeah. <laughs> in the Elisa Lamb case, remember Elisa Lamb right. from the Cecil Hotel? Mm-hmm. This timestamp was blurred out, and that's how they knew something. somebody tampered with it. Some, something was up. And authorities said that they did see the band on the footage walking down mm-hmm. the hallway. So even if they left the footage normal and they kept everything the same, and mm-hmm. then maybe if Brian came out after the band, they, they right. deleted that footage, there would still be a clear indication that they messed with it because the timestamp would be different. Yeah, and if, say it wasn't even that they edited that chunk out and they just stopped the footage where the band mm-hmm. stopped, the police would have just been like, okay, where's the rest of the footage? Exactly. <laughs> and then it would have been like, oh, it mysteriously disappeared. Like, yeah. obviously that's suspicious. Exactly. So this this theory is very unlikely. Like yeah. you said, a lot of things would have had to a go right. A lot of things would have to go right for that to work out. Yeah. But right now it's just like, there's nothing else. <laughs> with their two main theories not making much sense that either Brian fell on the construction site uh-huh. or was met with foul play... Authorities had to further dig for new theories that could logically explain Brian's disappearance. Mm -hmm. Now, next week, we're going to get into those theories. And these are the ones that I support, the ones that I think make the most sense. So stay tuned for next week. Hey, Queens, welcome back to the second half of this week's episode. In this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about what I would... I would still say it's a conspiracy theory, but it's honestly more of kind of a scary haunted story than Ooh, anything else. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. So I do think I've actually mentioned this one before, maybe when we talked about like Disney being frozen, like whenever we've done like film ones before, because this is a theory that surrounds a film or in this case, a trilogy of films. Hmm. So this week we are going to be talking about the poltergeist curse. Okay. Now, have you ever seen poltergeist? I have not. What is it? It is a horror film, so I have obviously never seen it. I'm surprised I haven't. Yeah, me too. What is it from? The 80s. Okay. But it's, the image you would know, it's of, you know that horror movie where it's TV static and a little girl sitting in front of TV and a hand comes out of the TV? 
No. Okay. Well, that's I fine. Just, I, I just don't know stuff like that. Right. That's how most people like identify that movie, even if they haven't seen it. The poster of the movie. Uh, I is very I've seen famous. it. I don't, I don't yeah. Know. I think you would probably recognize it if you saw it, because even if you haven't seen the film, that image like of the poster is very popular, and that's how I know it from because I'm a scaredy cat. I hate horror <laughs> movies. I don't like being scared. Don't watch any of them. So. Yeah. <laughs> now, the Poltergeist film series, like I said, is a trilogy of films. They came out in the 80s. The first film, just titled Poltergeist, was released in 1982. And this was the film of the trilogy that had the most financial success. It was critically well-received. It was considered almost br- groundbreaking at the time. Now, the second film came out in 1986 and was titled Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. And this film did make less money and was not well-received by critics. Lastly, Poltergeist 3, which didn't have a subtitle to it, was released in 1988 and, again, did not make as much money and had the worst reviews out of the trilogy. So like most movies go, it got worse and worse as the movies went on. (laughs) Now, like I said, full disclosure, I've not seen any of the Poltergeist movies, (laughs) but I'm still, you know, I looked at the plot a little bit so we can have a little plot synopsis here. I kind of want to watch it now. Maybe I have seen it, I just don't, I don't know. I mean, from what it sounds like, the first one is good. Yeah. And from reading the description of what happens in the movie, it seems like a good movie. Mm -hmm. It seems very, like, plot twisty and you don't really know what's happening until the end kind of thing. I love that. So, and it has, like, you know, the big fight sequences at the end. So, it doesn't seem all jump scary. The sequel seems to be very dependent on jump scares but the first one like you really don't know what's going on so it seems like a good arc for the story now the first film is about a family with three kids that move into a home and town that was developed over a native american cemetery which that seems how all these movies start since (laughs) everything's over a cemetery and people are haunting the house that's how these all start now the most like i said the most well-known part and image from the film is their young daughter whose name is carol ann hearing static from a television, reaching out a hand, and a hand reaches through the television. Later in the film, Carol Ann is sucked into a portal through her closet and is stuck in that other dimension, basically, with the ghosts from the cemetery. (laughs) The mom is able to ultimately save her, and after another attempt to kidnap Carol Ann, the whole house ends up sucked into this portal. Hmm. The second movie... Wait, how is that plot twisty? Well, okay, so you don't know that it's the... It's buried over, well, it's built over the cemetery, right? In the movie, you don't find out what that is until the end. Oh, okay. And you, the beast, like the person that is haunting them, you have no idea who that is. Even by the end of the film, you don't actually know the identity of that person, hmm. why this person is doing it. And you don't know why they're attacking the family. You don't know when the attacks are coming. You don't know why specifically they're targeting Carol Ann. Like, yeah. You don't know what they actually want. So... And the sequences where they actually try and stop the ghosts, those seems like they're big action kind of sequences. Mm. So the second movie, The Beast, that's what they were calling the thing that attacked them in the first movie, is revealed to be Pastor Kane and his followers, who it just seemed like he was a terrible guy and that was like a churchy person that had followers. Again, I did not watch the movie. <laughs> um, it plays out very similar to the first movie, so you won't get into it too much. They try to take Carol Ann again. They don't get her. They all move again. <laughs> again, the third one, very similar events, except it's done with Carol Ann, has now been sent away from her family, and it seems like it's because the family... The Beast is obviously going after Carol Ann, so the family, like, sent Carol Ann <laughs> elsewhere so they didn't get sucked into the portal again. That seems like what it is. I mean, obviously, it was probably because the actors didn't want to return for the third one, but that's the plot of the movie, yeah. is that she gets sent to her aunt and her aunt's family, and then, of course, the Beast come back and try to get her. <laughs> so, the poltergeist curse itself 
is because several people, mostly cast, connected to the film died young or very unexpectedly between the release of the first and third films. Hmm. That reminds me. You should also do, this is random, but you should do a Glee conspiracy. Oh, well, yes. yes. either creepy or die. <laughs> yes. I've, honestly, I probably will at some okay. point because there's a lot of odd things that come out of that show. Yeah. I love that show. I've never seen it. Oh, my God. <laughs> you would like, okay, just very quick side path. <laughs> you would love, like, the first two seasons. Okay. After that, it goes it gets very bad very cheesy very quickly after that but the first two seasons especially yeah. the first one is like genuinely good okay maybe i'll watch it it's it's worth it for the first little bit after a while you might stop caring but you're going to be invested in the characters so you have to watch the end at that point <laughs> but i watched it when it was you know on tv and that yeah kind of stuff. it's a great show anyway <laughs> so even before the mysterious deaths that surround the film happened there were rumors of odd occurrences happening on set during filming Many people believe that the curse itself began because in the film, the big end fight, and I said it the first one, Diane Freeling, the mother of the family, gets sunken into a hole in the yard that was meant to be where uh, in-ground pool would go. Mm -hmm. As she falls in, rainwater flows in, and she becomes surrounded by skeletons and the supposed bodies from the Native American cemetery that the house was built over. Reportedly... The skeletons used in this scene were real skeletons and not props, Ooh. which is super creepy. That is. Why would you ever do is that? Is this confirmed? I read this a million places. Uh-huh. So if it's not confirmed, confirmed, it's so widely reported that it's accepted as fact now at this point. Um, Whose bodies was it? Um, I read the one. I didn't read this in every article that I read, but the place that I did read was that they were brought from India. So I can't, like, com- completely confirm that, but that's where, from a reputable source, is yeah. what I read where they came from. Hmm. So, which, why would you ever do that? <laughs> Even if you don't believe in that kind of stuff, why would you ever risk that? I know it's going to look authentic, but I feel like you could make a prop that is just as good. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. So now this has led many theorists to believe that this disruption of bodies, basically, is what started the curse against the people involved in the film. Another odd event that happened during filming that I read was that Robbie, who plays the middle child, the son in the Freeling family in the films, had a scene in the first film involving a clown toy. In the filming of the scene, the toy is supposed to wrap his arms around the child's neck and choke him. Unfortunately, the prop actually did just that, and the actual actor, Oliver Robbins, began to choke. Did he die? No. But it actually took his face to start changing colors for the crew to realize that he was no longer acting and that they were and they were luckily able to get the toy off of him before anything damaging was done to That's Robbins. That's terrifying. So, but you can understand why at first that they didn't even think he was actually yeah. choking because he's supposed to be acting that he's choking. That's so scary. <laughs> so they just think that he's improvising really well. Wow, this kid's a great actor. <laughs> but it took literally his face changing to basically purple for them to be like, oh shoot, he's actually choking right How now. How did that happen? It was just a malfunction in the prop. Damn. Which, That's terrifying. Oh, 100%. First of all, a clown toy, already a little scary. <laughs> and it's like, that could have gone south so fast mm-hmm. if they hadn't realized what was going on. Now, another odd occurrence, Zelda Rubenstein, who played Tangina in the film, was doing a photo shoot for Poltergeist 3 when one of the photos appeared to have her jolting. Minutes later, she found out that her mother had passed away. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> so a little weird. That is weird. Also, while filming the second film, a car that was meant to explode in the film actually sent a building on fire in Chicago and caused over $250,000 in damages, and three people suffered minor injuries as a result. Mm. 
Okay, now that's everything of the weird occurrences, which is enough for there to be a theory in the first place, but now we'll get into the actual deaths that happened surrounding the film. Okay. The first of the four untimely deaths was actress Dominique Dunn, who played Dana Freeling, the eldest daughter of the Freeling family. In 1981, Dominique met John Thomas Sweeney, a sous chef, while at a party in 1981. After dating for only a few weeks, they moved in together in a one-bedroom house. However, their relationship unfortunately quickly turned dangerous as Sweeney became possessive and abusive both physically and emotionally. Mm. There was instances of him pulling out her hair, strangling her, and attacking her. But by 1982, Dunn had ended the relationship. Mm -hmm. A few weeks later, Sweeney showed up at Dunn's house while Dunn was practicing with fellow actor David Packer for a TV miniseries that they were going to be working on. She agreed to speak to Sweeney on her porch. After a few minutes, Packer, who remained inside, which it's not like he said he was going to remain inside. Like she said, it's okay, you can stay, that kind of thing. He remained inside. He heard thuds and screaming, and he immediately called the police, who told him that the residence was outside of their jurisdiction. Damn. Which, insane. How is that even, how? Well, if you think about it, there's no 911 at this point. Oh, so they're just... I forgot I forgot how early this was. Right, it's in the 80s, so they're just calling the police station. Yeah. So they can say, that's not that's our messed zone. That's up. Right. That's crazy. I didn't even register mm-hmm. what year this was. Right. So then he then called a friend, exited the house, and went to the driveway, where he saw Sweeney kneeling over Dunn, saying, I killed my girlfriend and tried to kill myself. Damn, I don't like this guy. Oh, it gets worse. At Sweeney's trial... He kept being convicted of lesser and lesser degrees as the trial went on, and he was ultimately only charged with voluntary manslaughter and a misdemeanor assault charge from a weeks before. I hate that. He was only sentenced to serve six years in prison. That's it. For a murder? Six years for, well, voluntary manslaughter, yeah, okay. quote unquote. And, he and only served leading up to that. Right, but it was only a misdemeanor, apparently. And he only served a little over three years of it before he was placed on parole. His trial is heavily criticized, obviously, for great reasons. Specifically, the judge seemed to be very biased towards him, and there was a refusal to show evidence that would have shown Sweeney's history of violence in the past. I hate that. After he left prison, he got a job as a chef in L.A., and Dominique's father, Dominique, would actually hand out flyers outside the place that Sweeney worked at, saying, quote, on the paper, the food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Aww, Dunn. Mm-hmm. I feel so bad for her dad. So that, oh yeah, 100%. So Sweeney eventually moved out of LA. A little time after that, I think it was a couple years later in the 90s at some point, a man called, called her father saying that his daughter had just been engaged to a man named John Sweeney, asking Dunn if it was the same John Sweeney that his daughter was dating. It actually was. And Dominique's brother ended up calling the girl, trying to convince her to call off the engagement. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, but Sweeney then claimed that Dunn was, and their family was harassing harassing him. And at this point, Dunn decided to stop keeping tabs on what was up with Sweeney. He basically was saying, you know, this man doesn't deserve my time and doesn't deserve the amount of effort of me Mm -hmm. consuming my life with him. Did, well, did did anything else come out of that, though, where he hurt somebody else? No. Okay. I, he did, you know, change his name, moved up somewhere. I think it said the Pacific Northwest, so I'm assuming somewhere along Washington, Oregon, like one of those places. Yeah, that makes sense. But, like I said, he changed his name, so it would be hard to keep tabs on him, and the father and the family no longer keep tabs on him. Okay. So the second death surrounding the Poltergeist film is Julian Beck, who died at 60 years old on September 14th, 1985. 
he portrayed Pastor Kane, who was the beast and the main antagonist of the trilogy in the second film, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Because remember, in the first one, he didn't have an identity to it, so he would have started acting as him in the second one. Although his death is not as unexpected and mysterious as the first and some of the ones to follow, 60 is still a pretty young age to die of health reasons. He was diagnosed with stomach cancer two years prior to his death, and ultimately died of that disease very shortly after completion of the film. Hmm. So this death isn't really mysterious, but it's just odd that all of these deaths are happening in the time span of these yeah, films being produced that. and released. That's what makes them so weird, that mm-hmm. so many of them happen during this film. Now, the third person attached to the film that died was Will Sampson, who died at only 53 years old on June 3, 1987. Sampson portrayed Taylor, a Native American shaman that helps the family in the second film. He suffered from scleroderma, a condition that damaged and affected his heart, lungs, and skin. And who is this again? Uh, Will oh, Sampson. Oh, he's 53, right? Yes, he okay. died at 53. Okay. Now, after complications from a heart and lung, lung transplant, Sampson ultimately passed. Although this procedure is very risky and unfortunately can often lead to death, making his death him- itself not that mysterious, the creepy part around his death is that he actually performed an exorcism on the set of yes, on the set of Poltergeist 2 as he was actually not only portraying a shaman but a real shaman, not just playing one. So, it's a little Wait, so he was a real exorcism? Right, he performed like a legit exorcism on the set of the film. And they did they and record it and include it in the film? No, no. It was like Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like him as Will oh, Sampson. That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's not I like even he did it was part the of the movie. No, 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 no. Yeah, like That's on, so scary. Right, because at that point we already knew the <laughs> previous death. So he was he believed and was spooked out about how they used real skeletons in the first movie. Mm. So he was like, That's creepy, we gotta get that bad juju out of here kind yeah, of thing. That makes sense. And he performed a legit exorcism on the set, not as his character, like him as himself. That is so scary. And him and the crew and cast like participated in it. <laughs> Damn. And he's the one that ultimately passed away from the film. Hmm. So, like I said, it's not that his death is not that suspicious. Like, we understand that's a very risky surgery to have, and he already had health conditions prior to. It's just, you know, of yeah. course it has to be him is the one that something happens <laughs> to. Now, the fourth death surrounding the film is probably the most tragic, as it involves Heather O'Rourke, who played the little girl and main character in the film, Carol Ann. She was only six when the first film was made, and she died on February 1st, 1988, at only the age of 12. Hmm. So did all the main characters die? I mean, most Because she played Carol Ann, you said. Right, so she's the main character of yeah. all three films. She's the one that the ghosts keep coming after. The other girl that died she, when she was 22, she was Carol Ann's sister, mm. so obviously a huge part of the film. The uh, woman whose mom died was very, very important to the film. And obviously, the guy that played Pastor Kane, he's the the main antagonist through the second film. So obviously, these are very, very important characters. And uh, Will Sampson's character is a huge part of the second film. That's crazy, because I'm surprised I never heard of this, because I love horror. Mm -hmm. But when you said this initially, I thought you meant... I thought you were going to say, like, five people died, but it was just, like, set people. Right, like the some, random crew yeah. members. No, yeah. it's these are, like, the people that are at the center of the film. Hmm. That's who this stuff happened to, which obviously makes it even more, like, suspicious yeah. and seem supernaturally, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Heather O'Rourke's official cause of death was stated as congenital stenosis of the intestines complicated by septic shock. 
The year prior, in 1987, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease after she got a parasite from well water that she drank at her family's home. Hmm. The day before her death, she became very sick with flu-like symptoms. She then collapsed, and en route to the hospital, she went into cardiac arrest. She survived that as they were able to get her heart pumping again after that and was taken into surgery for acute bowel obstruction. Right after the surgery, however, she again fell into cardiac arrest and she ultimately did not survive that. Oh, you said she was only 12? She was only 12. Damn, that's really young. Very young. And she, the Poltergeist films were her only film credits Mm -hmm. up to that point. However, she had been in television. The first Poltergeist movie was the first thing she was in, but then she was in the other Poltergeist movies and had television appearances. So, you know, she definitely had like a promising career. Yeah. And she was honestly the most well-reviewed and celebrated part of the first film and the other films to follow because like i said they didn't have the greatest reviews but none of them knocked her performance Mm -hmm. so it is obviously sad to see not just a person that was young pass away but somebody that was young and obviously had a bright future ahead of her too now the cause of death is odd as she had not previously suffered symptoms of bowel defect. However, it is possible that an infection can cause a sudden bowel rupture, so we, they believe that that is what happened to her. But still, just because it's possible, it is unlikely that mm-hmm. she would not have previously suffered symptoms like this. So It seems out of the blue. It seems a little out of the blue. Yeah. So, although she had the previous health conditions, uh, some people actually believe that she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in the first place. Maybe. So... Sure, she had previous conditions, but it's nothing that would have led her parents or anyone to believe that this would have been the manner in which she died. Yeah, it's interesting because, the, you know, this is only the 80s, right? Right. So it's not like people randomly died from things. Like, you, you know when you no. think of, like, the 1800s, if they were, like, act, the whole right. actress died? You're yes. like, okay, that makes sense. They died from random diseases. Right, because they live in such an environment that is unhealthy. Yeah, so, but this is, because it's so recent. Right, so it, a lot suspicious. of people don't just fall ill that suddenly like that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, those are the four deaths around it. So, like I said earlier, if it was just the odd occurrences alone, I would still say this is kind of weird. Yeah. But the odd occurrences plus four deaths, like I said, two of them are kind not natural causes, but they were older or had the pre-existing health conditions. So, besides that, it's just that, it, of course, they just happened to die in this time period. It's the time When they- the films were released. So, all of this happened... 82 is when the first one was released and then before 89 that means the mm-hmm. last O'Rourke died in 88 so between That's five those, years right so between those About. period four of the main characters of the film the main actors died plus all the weird things that were happening on the set interesting i do want to watch the film now because i'm surprised i've never seen it yeah i mean like i said i will not be watching it but, <laughs> but it's i 80s, have heard so it's, it's good scary. <sighs> yeah but still <laughs> i understand the effects will like kind of make the (laughs) effect wear off on me a little bit but it's still gonna freak me out (laughs) but so yeah if there are any other conspiracy theories that you have around films or behind the scenes of films i think i've said this a million times before obviously i'm a huge movie fan i know a bunch of random stuff about that kind of thing that nobody really needs to know i like listening to i like when you cover these ones because i don't know anything about movies yeah at all like so interesting i know so much random stuff that there's no need for me to know so i (laughs) there are a million other films that i already know have things like this happening in them that i can cover but if there are any specifically that you want me to talk about definitely let us know and if there are any other odd occurrences about this film that i couldn't find or didn't discover definitely also let us know 
Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Tune in every Friday for more mystery and madness. Bye, queens.